Hello and welcome to episode number 295 of the Armin Show podcast hosted by me, Armin Shervanian. The content is always informative, different people, different knowledge, research, learning more about the world. On this episode, we have an author, professor, and various other items, author of the book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, Professor Mauro F. Guillen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I'm glad to have you on. This book is in a category that I find to be interesting because I'm always future oriented. And then I also want to cover some of the things that will come up in the next five, 10 years, because it's almost like the individuals who have some sense of prediction are basically telling us what we're about to see. And my mind is already there. Welcome to the show. And what got you to write this book? Well, essentially, as you know, I'm a professor, so I'm always teaching. I'm always uh, making uh, presentations. I'm lecturing. Um, and uh, it's not just uh, for my students, but also with uh, business executives, with policymakers, and so on and so forth. And about seven years ago or so, I was detecting that people were getting nervous about so many things changing in the world so quickly, so many moving pieces, so many balls up in the air. Uh, you know, in terms of the economy, in terms of the society, politics, technology, and so on and so forth. And I decided, uh, look, I think uh, it would be worth writing a book about what the world is going to look like in 10 years from now. Well, at the time it was in 15 years, 2030. I did uh, quite a few of uh, calculations. I, I, I did a lot of number crunching. And I realized that by the year 2030, so it's not a uh, arbitrary um, uh, year, a lot of things would be um, you know reaching critical levels uh it's a tipping point kind of moment right and that's why i wrote the book mm -hmm. uh essentially to help people understand which way we're headed right it's kind of cool how every five years ten years whatever segment we look at is a tipping point for something whether it's the year 2000 2010 right now the first thing that came to my mind when i see the book is the kind of person who looks toward the future, what is it about your nature that causes you to think this way? Because some people are just in 2021 when it's 2021 and don't look that way. What causes that? Well, I think it's a very simple thing, which is that I was obviously born in the 20th century, a long time ago. And that world that I was born into, you know, I think is just uh, disappearing, is vanishing before our eyes. So I used to be like, as you said, the kind of guy who would worry about the next couple of years, would try to enjoy the moment, uh, wouldn't be, you know, like obsessed about, oh my goodness, where are we going to be in 10 or 20 years from now? Uh, but that realization on my part, which again started about seven years ago, that the world I was born into is vanishing before my very eyes, has essentially invited me not forced me, but invited me to, okay, let's just go through the mental exercise of thinking, where are we going to be in 10 years from now, right? And let me tell you, I think it's really important to adopt that kind of a time perspective because when things are peaceful and nothing changes, then you can just leave the moment. But right now, I think uh, most people in the world would agree in that we're going through a big transformation, right? And the pandemic has accelerated that, of course. And so we need to raise the perspective. We need to see a little bit beyond just uh, the immediate present 
or the immediate future. And we need to essentially try to anticipate, right? Because the point is that if we don't prepare, if we don't anticipate, if we don't adjust now, it's going to be too late by the time we get to 2030. This is true. I've spoken about this, how it's good to be ahead of things in life, in any category, when you're ahead of it, it comes and it shows up and you're like glad for it. It's like a surfer going for a wave and like you were ready for when the wave showed up. But if you went right as it was already crashing, you go there, it's already done. You're there disappointed that it already happened and you missed the moment whatsoever. It's, it's nice to have perspective. I don't know if what percent of people have this gained uh, increased perspective, but I'm with those individuals. What are, well, actually, before we get into some of the actual specifics, what is some of your educational background? I know you have studied in Spain and now teach at Wharton. How did you get to where you are uh, from Spain to here? Yeah, that's a great question. I was born and raised in Spain. I also went to college over there, and that's why I have an accent. And then I decided when I was in my sophomore year in college that I really liked research and I really liked teaching. So I started to work for a professor, and then one thing led to the next. Uh, you know, I ended up here in the United States studying, getting my doctorate, my PhD, uh, because it was indisputably at the time, I think it still is today, the best place in the world in which to study, to become a researcher, right, to get a PhD. Um, so I came here uh, by training. I'm both an economist at my undergrad and a sociologist. That was my grad school here in the United States. And I've been teaching since I graduated uh, at Wharton. Uh, so it's already been 25 years, which is a very long time. One thing that comes to mind is, are there any things from teaching and learning in Spain that give you a point of separation while you are teaching at Wharton? Is there any things that you take to well, mind? Of course. I think uh, no matter which other country in the world you know well, and I think I can claim that I know Spain or, for that matter, Europe relatively well, I think regardless of what that country is, it gives you another perspective, right? I mean, there's a famous political scientist, um, uh, Martin Lipset, who once said that those who know only one country know no country right? So it really makes a big difference going from only knowing, only having experienced one country to at least having experienced two, because then you can compare and contrast, right? Um, and I think it just makes all the difference in the world. Uh, now, having said that, of course, I was also trained to be somebody who, who, who seeks to understand everything in the world, right? The globalization and how things relate to one another. So the way in which I was trained, right, as a scholar was such that I'm always looking for those interconnections. I'm always looking for, uh, you know, trying to understand why different parts of the world are structured in different ways. It's like a networking mind. I, I think of myself as having a networking mind as well. Now, as far as this globalization and where we are headed, what are some of the key items people should hone in on for the upcoming 10 years? Well, I think we need to pay attention specifically to three things, okay? So the first is changes in population. So right. we know that, for example, we're having fewer babies. We know that populations are aging. You see, by the year 2030, here in the United States, we're gonna have more grandparents than grandchildren, right? which is a big right. change from uh, years past. We also seen, from a population point of view, the growth of cities, how women 
are becoming more important in the uh, labor force and so on and so forth. That's the first one. The second one is changes in the global economy. And in particular, of course, the rise of emerging markets. It's mm -hmm. not just China. It's China, it's Vietnam, it's Indonesia, it's South Asia, India, the Middle East, even Sub-Saharan Africa. All of those parts of the world are changing, right? And by the year 2030, they're going to be more than half of the global economy, right? Um, so they're going to you know, dwarf Europe and the United States, okay? That's another big change. And then the third one, I think most of your followers will agree with me, is technology, right? So that's where we see massive change. Every single day, there's a new thing. And as a result, the way we play, the way we learn, the way we work, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we shop, all of that is changing dramatically because of the use of technology. So I think those are the three key categories of things that we need to worry about in terms of uh, what the future will bring. As far as the one about emerging markets, what does that look like? Let's say now those nations' population have grown, the markets are huge and we're small. So we're kind of like how maybe Bolivia is today in comparison. Are we, I'm just picking a random country, but like not as large as compared to let's say the US and Europe in GDP amount. What, where does that leave the US and Europe? Are they then less relevant for global decisions? Yeah, so look, uh, Europe and the United States, and also Japan for that matter, we also have Japan in there. Uh, it's not that we're gonna be destitute. It's not that we're gonna be poor. We will mm -hmm. continue to be very rich countries in the world. In fact, we're gonna continue being the richest countries in the world. However, both in terms of population, for sure, but also in terms of the size of our market, mm -hmm. we're no longer gonna be the largest, right? And that has implications. It has implications, of course, for geopolitical power. It has implications for trade negotiations. But let me tell you, it also has consequences for how companies and how brands look at consumers. And for the longest time, every company in the world, every brand in the world would try to please the American consumer, right? I mean, their first priority was to do well with the American consumer. But now, my prediction is that by the year 2030, in fact, a little bit earlier than that, by the year 2028, China will be the largest consumer market in the world. And so slowly but surely, companies and brands are going to start paying more attention to the Chinese consumer because it's going to be the largest consumer market in the world. It's as simple as that. So here in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, we're going to have to adjust to that. And I don't think we have done so yet, right? So most of that still needs to be done. And of course, it's imperative that we understand the Chinese consumer because no company that doesn't succeed in China is gonna be able to be the best company in the world. And we want to have as many great companies as we possibly can. True, the numbers will just be in their favor in some regards. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the item about ages, which is another element that's related to this, if the US becomes much older on average than it currently is, as it looks to be doing, does that mean that other countries become way more active and we become stagnant? Are we, are we getting stagnant mm -hmm. as yeah. time goes on? That's a great question. And look, every country in the world is going through this process of population aging. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And the reason is very simple, which is that the number of babies being born is falling everywhere in the world. It has been falling here in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, in China for the last 30 or 40 years. And we've gotten to the point at which we don't replace ourselves, right? I mean, there's fewer babies being born than the number of people who pass away in some parts of the world. Uh, that hasn't happened yet in the United States, but we're close to being in that position. And of course, absent immigration, we would be losing population, right? So there's a, one immediate consequence of this, which is that certain things that we have in place are no longer going to be sustainable. For example, retiring at age 63 or 65, or making sure that social security has enough resources to make good on those promises that were made to everybody who has contributed to the has been contributing to the system. So that's the immediate effect. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, this process of population aging, we also need to look at it in a more optimistic fashion. And the optimism, I think, should be that we're living longer and longer. That's a good news, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is that if instead of living on average 55 years, mm-hmm. now we live on average 75 years, right? Then we have to change the way in which we organize the life cycle. So you see, back in the 19th century, a long time ago, it was decided somehow that first in life you play, then you go to school, then you work, and then you retire. And I think this is impossible to sustain in the future. Uh, We cannot retire at age 60 when if you reach that age, you're expected on average to live another 20 or 25 years, because that's too long of a retirement. Right? Yeah, sure is. And also think about the fact that somebody who turns 60 or 65 these days is in much better physical or mental shape than somebody at the same age 50 years ago, right? So we are healthier now and we are in better shape. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're going to have to do is accept two basic things. One is that retirement cannot start at age 60 or 65. It has to start much later than that on average, okay? And number two, that given technology, given how quickly knowledge is becoming obsolete, then we're going to have to go back to school several times. We cannot just go to school once when we are teenagers, when we are in our early 20s, if you go to college. We're going to have to do that, pursue a career based on that, and then maybe when we're 40 or 45, go back to school and pursue a different career. And if we did that, look at the problem that we will solve. It's the problem that now we have a lot of people who turn 50 or 55 and they cannot find work because they were trained to do something and suddenly there are robots doing that job, right? So we're going to have to accept the idea that we have to go to school several times. Instead of having just a few jobs that we have, maybe we have a, or we pursue a couple of careers over our lifetime, not just different jobs, but different careers even. We have to be more adaptive as time goes on. It's not just this thing will take me through 40 years of existence. Exactly. What come to mind as some things that will disappear from the current moment that we just won't be able to do 10, 15 years from now that we are currently doing? Do anything? Well, I think uh, the biggest thing is, for example, enjoy the environment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If we don't take action, and this is something that I cover in the book, we're going to be in a situation in which I'm not going to say that we're all going to be underwater, 
but our options are going to be constrained. I think this is the right way of thinking about it, right? Every year that passes, and we continue to pump carbon into the atmosphere, we continue to produce plastics and to discard them into the environment. We continue to reduce the biodiversity in the world in terms of plant and animal species. Every year that we continue doing that, we are reducing our options for the future. We're making it harder for us to be able to have full, enjoyable lives on earth, right? So I, I'm not saying that, you know, if we don't do anything, we're gonna face catastrophe. It's gonna be the end of the world. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that increasingly, we're gonna be facing more and more difficulties. And that's not something that we should be doing. We should be taking action now to preserve our options, to be able to offer everyone on the planet a good life. But if we don't take the environment more seriously, I think it's gonna be pretty difficult to get to that point. It sounds like it's somewhat difficult. What are some things that the average person can do in 2021 so that they're taking into account where we look like we're going? Well, I think the first uh, most important thing is to be aware of the fact that things are changing, that we're going through a big transformation. Second point is to not pay attention to anybody who says, oh, I can get you to where we were 10 years ago. We can go back to the golden age. That's not possible. And as you know, many politicians promise exactly that. And I think the second very important point is we have to resist that temptation. I mean, there's no easy fix to these things. And there's no turning back. I mean, it's always been impossible, just think about it in history, to turn the clock back. So we need to be forward looking. We cannot be thinking right now, oh, why don't we try to do something so that we can go back to where we were in the year 2000? That's impossible, okay? And then the third point, more important, this is more actionable. And let me illustrate it with the problem about the environment. Look, uh, the problem about the environment, we can fix it with technology. We can fix it with new renewable energy sources and all of those things, but we're making progress with that, but not fast enough. So I think there's something else that people like yourself or myself can do as individuals within our families, in our communities, which is to be less wasteful. This is what we need to do, right? We are way too wasteful. Let me just give you a very concrete example. According to the US Department of Agriculture, we waste in the United States about 30% of the food that reaches the end consumer. In other words, we throw away 30% of the food. We let it go bad in our pantry. We don't finish the food on our plate. And it just so happens that the agricultural sector is the biggest, single biggest consumer of water, right? Which as you know, is a resource that is becoming more scarce. We, we use, 80% of the water that we use, human beings, is in the process of food production, right? Um, of the fresh water. Um, and uh, the other point to keep in mind over here is that agriculture is the single most important contributor to global warming. There's a lot of carbon emissions, right? Because of the use of fertilizers, because the, you know, the cattle also uh, emits a lot of uh, carbon emissions. Uh, and finally, because we transport the food. If we were able to, you know, waste less food and therefore reduce how much agriculture we have, right? Because again, we waste 30%. 
that would have a huge impact on the environment, positive impact. That's something that you and I can do by trying to avoid wasting food. You can bring any efficiency to the world with that and it's individual for us. One thing that came to mind as we were speaking about different countries was language that we use. And I was curious, how different is it 10 years from now knowing English or knowing Spanish or knowing Chinese? What's the relevance of those at that time? Yeah, that's great. Uh, so I'm glad you asked me that question because the other day, last week, I was on a webinar like this, uh, debating precisely this issue with a, uh, a professor who is a teacher of languages, right? Oh. And uh, look, it's very clear that in certain walks of life, like the world of business or the world of science, English is becoming the language that everybody uses, right? So there's mm -hmm. no question about it. And also, I think it's worth noting that now we have um, apps on our phones that can in real time translate for us a conversation. So let's say that you and I didn't, spoke, didn't speak English. So you're speaking your mother tongue, I speak my mother tongue. We cannot understand each other. But with uh, one of these apps on a smartphone, we could actually have a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And those apps will only get better as artificial intelligence um, you know, becomes uh, more accurate and more effective. But here's the thing. The same way that I told you earlier that people who know only one country know no country, they don't have a perspective, right? I think the same goes for languages. So I would say you don't have to speak eight languages, but I think there are two very important benefits from learning another language different from your own language. The mm -hmm. first benefit is that it's a very humbling experience because it's very tough to acquire a language. And I think that's um, very good for human beings to be humbled in that way and understand the difficulty of things. But the other very important benefit is that when you learn a language, you're not just learning vocabulary. You're not just learning syntax. You're learning about a culture. So you're learning about some other part of the world. And once again, I think that is incredibly enriching. So yes, I mean, languages are becoming less important from the point of view of um, you know, the business world or the world of science and knowledge, everything is in English. And again, we have these apps on the phone, but I would still encourage people, if you don't yet know another language, learn it because it's going to make you a better human being. That makes sense. Throwing this out there for entertainment for the episode, Yo soy Armin de Iran. Exactly. I'm born in your Exactly right. Now, the power of language. I, I like that value. And I like the real-time translation item. I feel like in the future I will be using that a lot um, to speak with many different people from France or wherever. And specifically, we don't have to actually translate and it's automatically done. It's a wonderful thing. One other item I go to in my mind is emigration or movement around. Like right now, in the United States, there is some movement sort, sort of towards the south and towards the east uh, from coastal areas and uh, maybe a little bit towards the colder regions like Colorado and whatnot as the world warms up. What kind of trends can we look for, not in terms of population growth in within countries, but um, people moving to other areas? What do we look for there? Yeah, so I think uh, here we need to um, distinguish between the short term and the long term, right? Mm -hmm. So in the short term, as you know, uh, the single most important 
you know, thing going on in terms of uh, migration in the world is that there's a backlash both in Europe and the United States against immigration, right? Whether we like it or not, the truth of the matter is that there is a backlash. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of political opposition to it. And I think that's going to reshape many of the debates about migration. Um, we've already seen that there's a somewhat of a decline in the number of uh, international migrants in the world. Because again, Europe and the United States are the most important destinations um, for those looking for a better life economically. And uh, it's having an impact. But however, longer term, what I worry about, to tell you the truth, is not so much the kind of classic um, migration that we've had. I worry about, for example, climate refugees, right? So if we don't address the problem of climate change, how many people in certain parts of Africa, the Middle East, and especially South Asia and Southeast Asia, where, you know, we're already seeing, for example, in Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia, more than 20 million people, that you have salt water in the streets all the time, right? Uh, because of climate change. So I worry about the fact that the next crisis in terms of migration that we're gonna have in the world is gonna be with climate refugees, right? People who are gonna be trying to move somewhere else because of the impact of climate change. I, I worry deeply about that. Now, having said that, I remain optimistic about migration. Now, of course, um, I am uh, self-interested uh, in it, given that I'm an immigrant myself. But look, here in the United States, uh, think about the companies that have changed the economy, Google, Tesla, and so on and so forth. They were all founded or co-founded by immigrants. I mean, immigrants are entrepreneurs. Immigrants create wealth. Contrary to the myth, immigrants make more contributions to the social security system than the benefits that they take, right, here in the United States. So I think immigration, uh, assuming that there is a, a, an orderly system for it, I think can be a positive force. Um, unfortunately, both in Europe and the United States right now, the topic is so politicized that it's very difficult to have a good conversation about it. But I think uh, the future of this country, and it has also been its history, depends on, I think, a steady but a well-organized flow of immigration. You mentioned politicization there. What a difficult word. But it made me think of an individual I'd spoken with, Peter Coleman at Columbia University, and he always talks about the increase in polarization um, or the current moments where it's high. Yeah. How do you feel that polarization will be uh, as we move forward in comparison to today where it's somewhat high in some countries? Well, no, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I'm, I'm very concerned about political polarization, and I'm very concerned about inequality, both things. And look, uh, the three kinds of trends that I told you about in the book actually tend to polarize public opinion, right? So demographic trends are polarizing public opinion. Why? Well, because now we have a lot of people above the age of 60, and they have very different political priorities than young people, right? Uh, then we have technology. Uh, so, uh, you see, when we didn't have social media, People would read newspapers. They would read the local newspapers. But now the local newspapers are out of business, right? And now people are getting all of their information, their news and all of that from some kind of an internet source with which they agree with. So there's very little debate. And people, you know, they figure out what is it that they believe in. And then they only get the news from sources that essentially repeat what they believe, right? So 
then as a result, you get this polarization. We're farther away from one another. And there's fewer and fewer possibilities for exchange of views, for debate, for constructive you know, debate uh, among us, that's right. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, the problem with um, emerging markets. Uh, well, look, not only emerging markets are democracies, right? Um, some of the bigger ones, and uh, I think everybody knows which one I'm talking about, is far from being a democracy. And in fact, it's actually becoming less uh, or farther away from being a democracy these days. So the problem is that the trends are certainly dividing us, they're certainly polarizing us, and they're certainly creating more division. And that's why I think it's so important for, you know, what you do, which is to try to engage an audience in debate about important issues. I think it's very important for somebody like myself, I'm a professor, to continue educating people and helping them see all of these different aspects. Uh, so, so I think we need to make a greater effort. And once again, initially such as your podcast or what I do as an educator, I think that's going to be the only way in which we can really overcome this problem in the world. Yes. One thought that just came to my mind is our nation is a lot of individualists and they don't really think group oriented. The nations that are growing in the next five, 10 years and currently are much more collective countries where they are group oriented and individualism is frowned upon. And with globalization connecting uh, people more and like, let's say the pandemic requires everybody to have a unified response. Does that also, it's kind of funny. I have a theme almost. It sounds like I'm saying, does the U S keep getting less relevant, but do we become quieter in the public landscape when there are something like a pandemic and everybody there groups together and takes care of it. And over here we're like, I'm and we don't really able, we're not able to tackle it. Well, where does that leave us? Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, you're bringing up a very important issue, which is what is the right balance between individualism, individual rights, and community, right? Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, it is true that the United States is a country where, at least in principle, politically, individual rights are really important. And we all understand that there's nothing wrong with people pursuing their self-interest always within the law, of course, and within the uh, usual norms of behavior and all of that. But at the same time, we also have, I think, in the United States, a very rich tradition of uh, community, um, you know, in terms of uh, nonprofit organizations, religious associations, uh, clubs, uh, all sorts of things, right? And you see this, you know, um, tension between the individualism and the community orientation in every country around the world, right? Um, and there are some rich countries, for example, Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, who are typically understood to be much stronger in terms of what you said was a collectivistic culture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yet they're very successful. And then, you know, if you go to the emerging markets, you're right. I mean, there are some countries that are very individualistic, but uh, there's also many others that are very collectivistic. So I think, uh, you know, I think what I'm trying to say here is that every society has to strike a balance between the two. There's no question about it. Because if you, if you are 100% individualistic, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to prevent certain perverse things from happening. For example, that some people get really rich and others fall behind, uh, or that, that you have political tensions. 
Uh, but if you if you are completely community oriented and you don't observe uh, or collectivistic and you don't observe individual rights, then you know other problems are going to emerge, right? So I think I think uh, I think the 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 right uh, balance uh, is what we should be aiming for. And you can think about it in the following way. I mean, I, I do believe in individual rights, and I think it's really important, especially for democracies, to uh, uh, you know protect individual rights. Um, but we know that nothing is perfect and that if we only have individual rights and obligations, of course, then what happens is that you're going to get a lot of inequality. And that's why we need to balance that out with um, community, uh, with some collectivist value. Right? So again, I think it's a matter of equilibrium. It's a matter of give and take there, as opposed to, oh, I, we have to be either one thing or the other. Right? Mm -hmm. When you think of Balance is a wonderful thing. Long live equilibrium. When you get off of equilibrium, life always sends a nice message like you're, you're, you're too far off. Yeah. When we look at all the different countries on the earth or continents, which ones right now might look like they're not taking into account where we're going in 10 years? Is there countries or continents that look like they're missing the concept? Or if not on that end, are there any countries that look like they're really with it as far as they're, they're really setting themselves up for 10 years. I now. can tell you based on my own experience. Mm -hmm. So I, before the pandemic, I used to travel around the world and make presentations. Cool. Uh, yeah. Now during the pandemic, I'm using technology right. uh, and uh, I'm also making presentations to groups and audiences in different parts of the world every week. And I can tell you the following. Europe and the US, we are in denial for the most part about all of these transformations. However, if you talk to people in Asia, East Asia, South Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, they get it. They understand that things are changing. Now, they also understand that things are changing in their favor, right? I think the reason why we are in denial here in Europe or in the United States, I think it's because we assume that the changes that are going on are going to be working against us. And that may well be, but the appropriate response is not to resist the changes or to say, I'm going to isolate myself from that. I'm going to you know, turn inwards. I think the appropriate response is to engage with those changes. And again, there's no reason why Europeans or Americans um, should become poor, right? I mean, we can still continue to be a rich, relatively affluent society. Uh, we could do better in terms of inequality, but we can aspire to continue being in that position, being a leader in the world without being the largest country in the world or without being the largest market in the world. I think that's the mental adjustment that we need to make, that one thing doesn't preclude the other. Look, there are very small countries in the world with just a couple million people or five million at most that are rich that have been rich countries for a very long time. Hmm. Um, so size is not everything. So we need to adjust to this new situation. That's what I'm trying to say. Hmm. It's something nice. It's sort of like when there is uh, agriculture happening in the middle of the country, and then there's the parts of the country that benefit from it, but they don't actually see what's going on. So when changes happen, the farmers see it first, and they see it on their land, and uh, the last people to see it are the maybe consumers. They're like, oh, that happened over there. Now to us, the United States and Europe, parts of the earth are that. And 
they are ahead of us as far as where the growth is, the changes maybe in the mineral composition that they have. And so we're the last to find out unless we go and uh, look at it. Speaking of, I want to throw in Africa. Africa has definitely had some growth. I've been seeing some of the huge projects they have there. Are they huge in 2030 or is that not the case? No, I think Africa is a, the next frontier in the world for sure. Uh, look, uh, in Africa, some really exciting things are going on. First is that for the most part, there's still some issues here and there, but for the most part, many of those civil wars are now a thing of the past. We've seen the growth of the middle class, especially in the larger cities. There's still a lot of problems with poverty, with uh, hunger, all sorts of things, but the situation is much better than 10 or 20 years ago. But more importantly, think about Africa in the following way. There are entrepreneurs there. They use mobile payments to a greater extent than we do here. They use, or they've been using telemedicine well before we started to use it in the wake of this pandemic. Uh, they are further ahead of the curve than we are in certain areas. And the thing about Africa is the following. Look, by the year 2030, it's gonna be the second biggest region in the world by population, right? So we're not gonna be able to ignore Africa. And I think we should be doing whatever it is that we can to make sure that those babies to be born in Africa will be fed and will be educated. Because if they are fed and educated, then Africa is going to be a very dynamic part of the global economy. And that's going to be good for everyone. However, if uh, for whatever reason that doesn't happen, then Africa is going to be a problem for everyone. And it's going to be a big problem because the population has gotten so big, right? So I think we should turn more of our attention to Africa. And that's you know, what I do in the book because for better or worse, it's gonna be a part of the world that is gonna matter increasingly in the future. I was looking at a few projects there and it is a cool concept that we have brought technology up to a certain level, but a lot of things, let's say Los Angeles or a lot of cities are built already and everything is very set up, but then over there, they can build from scratch with the best systems, most efficient things that we have been working on for the past 20 years. Uh, what technologies from today are likely to remain 10 years from now very similar to the way they are today? Is there anything that's very similar to today? Well, I think um, transportation is going to be relatively similar, except that hopefully, at least in some countries, we will be making the transition from um, fossil fuels to electric cars, right? But the, the overall technology is going to be relatively similar. Mm -hmm. um, there seem to be some, as you know, important obstacles to self, uh, to autonomous vehicles. We'll see whether that gets, um, you know, improved or not. But uh, that's one area in which I don't think there's going to be dramatic change. Whereas in others, like healthcare with the human genome, or like uh, financial markets with mobile payments, with cryptocurrencies, um, everything that has to do with paperwork, with the blockchain, um, nanotechnologies, new materials, all of that. I think there's other parts of the economy that are going to be so different by the year 2030 because of these technologies. Right? Mm -hmm. I always like to bring things together with, if you had a message to all people on the planet about what you'd want them to know, what would you tell them to prepare them for these next few years? Uh, number one is avoid being a denier of change, right? This is happening all around us and there's no point in denying it. 
So try to be informed, try to learn about it, talk to other people you know and you trust about it, and try to position yourself to make adjustments now before it's too late. That's number one. Number two is, as I was mentioning earlier, I think uh, the biggest thing that is going to happen in the world is that we're going to move away from that model in which we went through stages in life, right? You play, you learn, you work, you retire. That's going to affect everyone. And that is driven by, again, the fact that we're living longer and longer. And secondly, that technology is making knowledge obsolete very quickly. So we're going to have to learn how to live several lives, right? Not just one. So go back to school, learn another career, another trade, uh, pursue it uh, for the following 20 years, and then maybe go back to school again. So we're going to have to make a lot of mental adjustments, right? Uh, so I would recommend people to be as flexible as possible because um, psychologically we're going to have to, you know, be very, very flexible, very malleable. I like this message. Flexibility, very important. Not getting fixed in some way. Yeah. Professor, again, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show. Thank you so very much for having me. Glad to. And we are out.